I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about transphobic ideologies, such as trans-exclusionary radical feminism, and its intersections with fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. In this episode, we will be looking at misinformation, what it's for, how it works, and how it endangers our community. We'll be looking at a rather unusual case study in deference to M's total nerdery on the subject of geopolitics, a comparison between the role and structure of online disinformation networks in the Syrian civil war, and how the transphobic political movement utilizes nearly identical methods to spread its own disinformation. Anyone studying the online gender fasci movement will know that transphobic misinformation spreads and poisons online and real life politics for LGBT people. So it's important to try and figure out understanding of how this disinformation functions. From this starting point, we will also talk about other movements we've discussed previously, neo-Nazis, mainstream liberal commentators, anti-vaxxers, QAnon and the like. As ever, our music is by Molly Noise. Um, the content warnings for this episode are gonna be a little bit unusual. Obviously, there's going to be some discussion of like generalized transphobia, as there always is. But because we're going to be talking about essentially what amounts to war crimes denial, that also means that some of the things we're going to have to go into are going to touch on the specific events during the Syrian civil war. Um, The kinds of things that might come up in this discussion will be discussions of like choking of the effects of certain kinds of chemical weapons on the human body and kind of just like generally like quite unpleasant like high violence stuff however we're not going to need to go into this in encyclopedic detail it's just to warn you that that kind of discussion will be being had we're not going to be like picking over post-mortems it's just there might be some mentions of unpleasant things happening to human beings okay so i guess we've got to begin by explaining like why i have um beat my baby fists on the table and petulantly demand we do an episode about this extreme i'm blinking slowly and sos which is you know the the, the point is entirely missed because we're doing a fucking podcast but i promise you i'm doing it oh, okay great well anyway <laughs> we got to explain to the listeners why i bullied e into into letting oppressed letting me do this episode it is actually important um so as I think I've now mentioned several times in this podcast, I'm really into like geopolitics and, and military nonsense because I'm one of those angry young men online. Um, and the way that I got into it was like basically when the like the 2011 uprisings kicked off, uh, I kind of like got drawn into this online community of people who would like pick through with a fine tooth comb uh, like footage and imagery that would come out of conflict zones. Um, this is now referred to in like common journalistic parlance as open source intelligence or open source information ga- information gathering, also known as OSINT. Um, a lot of you who are kind of involved in, in anti-fascism and like left-wing militancy will probably be familiar with that term. Um, but a lot of it was kind of pioneered in the Syrian civil war, particularly to do with the documentation of war crimes and like the 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 dispelling of fake news and like anti-disinformation work because there's been a lot of disinformation that came out of the conflict. Um, But the reason why I want to link it to this is because the way that the disinformation spread was very, very interesting to me because it spread within communities that I'm part of, which is like basically like online militant leftists, um, people who are like involved with left-wing activism, people of the younger generation who are like extremely focused on, I mean, people who are on their damn phones, basically. and the more and more I've like learned about like TERFs and the gender critical movement and like general transphobic stuff and how it utilizes misinformation 
and like lying and like online dogpiling and all these kind of like kiwi farms tactics the more i think that they're using very very similar models of misinformation like to the point where like different components of this like misinformation machine are functionally like nearly identical like you've got the same kinds of grifters you've got the same kinds of like low-end trolls you've got the same kinds of like andrew neil type uh tv bigwigs involved in this uh like spectacular process and i just think that the comparison is so interesting that it, it helps highlight how like the absolutely just horrendous atrocities of the, of the syrian civil war ended up being excused by exactly the same kinds of mindsets that help excuse the the weird and terrible things that get, get done to trans people um yeah it's not to be a moral equivalency between um dropping sarin gas on a village and and transphobia i don't think that's a fair comparison um <laughs> No, I, f I feel like the, the part of the reason this podcast exists and, and, and behind the doors of BNT HQ, a lot of uh, the way that we work is like M and I have completely different backgrounds and we're both very online, as you can probably tell. But while M was, um, you know, nitpicking, uh, you know, war stuff uh, at that time period, I was coming at things from a completely different perspective and seeing, weirdly enough, um, kind of similar parallels, but but in a in a more kind of like oh the left online generally has this explosion of information which we'll discuss later, and it's being used in these like disingenuous ways. And like I think it is a really good comparison because uh, while we were researching this episode and, and M was 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 giving me a similar background to the one we're we're going to give uh, you the listeners. Every 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 new thing I learned, I was like oh yeah this this has a massive parallel, not in terms again of moral equivalency or even, you know, the same necessary uh, reasons or rhetoric behind each thing, but just the sort of the moment of internet, which it seized upon and like the, you know, the, com the communication failures and the literal disinformation, misinformation, cognito hazards, which is a term uh, that's quite common, but I don't think we've, we've not actually used uh, on a podcast before, have we? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, we should probably talk about that as well but yeah there's like there's a, a lot of parallels i'll 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 i, I uh, i'll let him get back to the nerdery but i do i do genuinely think um it's quite it's quite important yeah but basically our reasoning is that like the left and like the liberal intelligentsia in general which the terrorists are just like fully embedded in in britain particularly is uniquely vulnerable to misinformation of a particular style so any, yes. any human society is vulnerable to misinformation. Like misinformation is, is just like a form of communication. It's like a targeted form of communication. So nobody, nobody is like more or less vulnerable to misinformation in general. They're just more or less vulnerable to different kinds. And the kinds of misinformation that I think were important to like driving the online left into a kind of like conspiracy theory mindset about a lot of, a lot of geopolitical things are similar to the kinds of misinformation that, that, that basically sent a lot of like liberal feminists into turf zone and it's like the reason for this is it's kind of an environment that's based on intellectual currency on like um on like having your intelligentsia credit card be fully stocked up and therefore it's all about like informational access and like being being like a, a proud contender in the discourse thunderdome and the thing is that doesn't actually provide better information it provides like better info warriors <laughs> well you're always the most vulnerable to advertising and misinformation when you think you're above it as well so at that kind of intelligentsia currency does make you s supremely more vulnerable to specific like information-based misinformation 
uh, yeah, the, the left love being about how like it's it's above it, it can see through all of these like international political propaganda campaigns when actually we're just as bad as everybody else. We talk quite a lot about the sort of almost ecological or like evolutionary uh, understanding of like how this stuff all works, which makes more sense to me because I'm not a war nerd, uh, nor am I a biologist, but still. Um, and it really seems like almost the reason that there's so many parallels between the Syrian civil war and like the you know the gender wars is because it's almost like the mass dumping of the on the ground information uh, is like a completely new entry to like the informational ecosphere which like the current fauna are just totally unprepared for and like that's why it has this like massive effect you're completely right that was that was like hugely influential for all of the like 2011 and onwards um revolutions in like central eurasia and the middle east uh that was very formative like syria was probably the place where it was most formative um yeah i mean i i i wonder if people should have like almost predicted that like the fucking discourse thunderdome turf twitter shit would happen because i remember when like arab spring happened and stuff like that there were so many op-eds about like oh the breaking news is on twitter all of the information is on twitter yes um and this this is the big problem because twitter is very ephemeral um, and a lot of a lot of social media websites are very ephemeral in the way that newspaper archives and official information institutions like academies and, and universities aren't because it all goes in the giant vault in the Hansard or whatever. Yeah, it go, yeah, it goes into Hansard. It goes into the, the the fucking like scribed book where there's like beautifully lettered pages because everybody's a monk and they're still using like pens that have like iron gall ink in them and all this crap. That's how universities work. I know because I haven't been to one. <laughs> that's definitely how they work uh the exclusivity also includes the um the permanent the permanence of it and yeah, the impermanence it, it is a form of quality control and it, it in many ways it does work it just doesn't work in other ways but um yeah so the, basically the way that the way that uh disinformation for this stuff worked is that there was this kind of base of um i guess what you would call like small information producers like the information proles and it would kind of get churned out by the people. Who... Info lumpen. Yeah, the info. L- <laughs> the the post the post proles the info lumpen. Basically, basically, because all of this stuff, all of the reporting from the early phase of the Syrian civil war, on particularly on the rebel side, was done by like kids with cell phones, um, who would like take videos of like tank offensives or or protests. Like, and we take that for granted now, like when people were talking about the the Snapchat coverage of like. Um, uh, Sheshara, uh, but that was like really new then. Yes, it was. It was groundbreaking, really. Like the only people who'd done the equivalent thing um, prior to that was the Green Revolution in Iran, which was like a failed liberal uprising in Tehran, um, where there was a little bit of cell phone activity, and that was the that was the previous major incident of that type on the world stage. Like there there'd been other ones, but 2011 was when it really kicked off. Like everyone had cell phones. Everyone was like basically millennials. Like it was all being done by like unemployed millennials who were just really pissed off at these various dictatorships and they were just filming like protests and filming themselves getting machine guns and all this kind of thing and like the, the the degree to which the relevant governments weren't able to handle this was like incredible there was one story where um the secret police didn't understand that videos were being hosted on youtube so they were going around and torturing people to force them to take the videos off their phones which is like, it's it's not even it's not even like a Kafka esque comedy. It's like Mr. Bean goes torturing. 
Yeah, it's like, oh, uh, there's the farcical element of they completely misunderstood the technology, but they did still torture people. Anyway, should we explain how misinformation works? (laughs) Yes. Right, so um, misinformation is a product, uh, and we're consuming the product, right? Um, Delicious. You and I, when we go out there and we consume the misinformation that makes us vote Tory, we're we're consuming um, like a marketable product, we're consuming advertising. It's largely produced by and for specific political institutions and that's how it's basically been since the dawn of time it's interesting you say that as well because like specifically the tory advertising connection like it's it's funny because like tory advertising used to be literal advertising like with the saatchi and saatchi campaign that um really helped thatcher hold on to power on in her early shaky start uh so it did literally used to be advertising and also now the tories do just do facebook misinformation campaigns like they have actually adapted to the change yeah, the Tories have been very good at adapting to it, actually, as they always are. I mean, there, yeah. there, is, there is a reason why all baby leftists start yelling about manufacturing consent and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, we will not be going into manufacturing consent. We are beneath such things, or above them, <laughs> or something. Anyway, so it's, it's a product. Um, it's, a, it's a spectacular product. Uh, now, not all the political institutions that produce disinformation are equal. Uh, sometimes you get governments, sometimes you get newspapers, sometimes you get like uh, entire media industries, um, uh, and sometimes you get like two idiots with a podcast. Like maybe we're doing this information now. There's plenty of podcasts that do, um, and sometimes you, you know you just get people posting it now. Whereas previously, like in the last like in the last century, misinformation really was the realm of larger institutions because there's been a democratization of information access, both in terms of like interpreting and reading it. And in terms of producing and distributing it, that means there's been a democratization of the ability to produce disinformation. So basically anybody can anybody can run a hoax now. Uh, and because there was this explosion of like live, like citizen journalism reporting in all of these revolutions, that meant that a, key, a chief characteristic of the information environment was this rapid democratization. And also like a very, very low. Uh, like quality barrier to reporting like fact checking isn't a thing that somebody who is videoing a protest is going to think about or 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 even the thing that people retweeting the video are going to think about and because of that it means that there was an opening in this open in this early open source model for disinformation to also become a chief characteristic of the modern information environment which it then did well, it's also like uh, we were saying earlier about um, the universities and the, and, the, and the Hansard archive and stuff. Like the point of an, of an institution is to be um, exclusive. And so if you're only letting in, you know, 1% of the population, you do have time to scribe everything. Whereas if you are doing citizen journalism and you've got millions of people creating data, uh, it's also hard to fact check. There's a lot of stuff. It's, the other thing is that like fact checking, some fact checking is easy. And some fact checking is very, very hard, and mm. we will get into that later. <laughs> anyway, so you've got this uh, disinformation-rich information environments that, that that can spring up in like high-profile political situations, uh, like war zones or like protests or or you know just any kind of like general elections are great for them. Like everybody remembers what the last general election in the UK was like. That was wild. Um, but the, there's certain key characteristics that I feel emerge within disinformation-rich, politically tense environments, and that's that they're reliant on the existence of these like polarized spheres of consumers, and it will be according to the personal preferences or like or political leanings 
of those consumers, of those people. Uh, and this gets referred to as the echo chamber, which is a bit of a, a wank concept that like liberal journalists love going on about. But to a certain extent, it does it does sort of exist. Um, I think I think that the liberal interpretation is that it's like full sheeple, like people will only listen to stuff that they agree with, like they will absolutely only ever do this. All voters are stupid. Um, that nobody nobody ever like looked at alternative like media sources at all to what they're normally used to. That's not true. Um, it's not true at all. But people do have like definable preferences, and that means that if the preferences become politically opposed to another group's, you know, information preferences, it creates a, a like a polarization system, and that creates in groups. Um, so that means these these like you know these spheres of of people have like a very specific demand for tailored content. Um, the more polarized these people will be, the more demand there will be for specifically distinct content that caters to them in a very, very specific way about very, very specific issues. Um, now, when it came to Syria, uh, like the polarization was already built in because it was a civil war and like a very complicated one. Um, like I think there was a perception early on that it was like a two-sided civil war where there were like rebels and then there was an, an, and Assad and like immediately that kind of imploded because not only was the Assad regime like rather, rather like complex in terms of like how it operated internally and there were a lot of like international um, influences from its various like backers but also like the rebel side had like various different like factions to it and there was all these other kind of international influences involved um, which again we will, we will go into in a bit yeah it's like especially because it's a war narrative where people are really primed to assume that it's like one-sided when in fact that's not actually how things work like the Assad regime may have been quite complex uh, but also that's really understandable, even without the kind of like international um, aspect to it, like uh, part of the marketing of the war to people like us, for example, uh, relied on that flattening kind of from the get go. So it kind of the misinformation seems like it was sort of built in from the very start from the nature of how wars are reported uh, yeah. and how wars are done. Yeah, I mean, uh, it didn't exist in some kind of like pristine vacuum, like they were building off basic history in the region, like it was expectable this stuff would happen. What I don't think, what I think that people weren't capable of predicting was the, was what we're talking about, which is the effect on like the worldwide information quality system. Like that, that was the real kind of like surprise for the, from the point of view of like people studying propaganda was how much of a watershed moment that particular conflict became. I mean, as you say, all of these, like these factors predated the civil war, like there were existing political constituencies and anyone who has like a conscious or unconscious stake in the, in this dynamic and the outcome of the war, like all of that was just built in immediately as soon as it, as soon as it turned up. It, it, it makes sense that people couldn't predict it though, because it seems like this is all predicated on the actual advance of information technology, like, um, you know, everyone spent ages, even in like the 90s, 80s, 90s and up to the noughties talking about how the Internet was going to make everyone famous for five minutes. They didn't expect that the the reverse would mean that it would make everyone the curators of their own informational landscape. Like when people talk about echo chambers, what they seem to miss is like they do all this moralizing about like, oh, everyone has an echo chamber now. Um, and they miss the, the direct small information producers mean that people can, you know, people watch their, create their own cable TV on YouTube and they create their own newspaper on Twitter or whatever. And everyone's going to have biases, but now you're consuming them in a more parasocial way. And so yeah. like, of course, you're going to have like a, just a change in how propaganda works, but they wouldn't have known that because it, it, it wasn't based on 
like you know like you say the existing political uh stuff which is which had a precedent it was more based on this massive influx of like information yeah exactly like that, that's very much what like it was it was like a classic case of system shock like a like it was almost like an invasive like, to continue on our, our predilection for biological metaphors it was like an invasive species suddenly turned up in the galapagos island and started eating all the iguanas um like people just didn't know what to do yeah no one could have predicted that the the the, the finch would have come over and fucked everyone's shit up like they didn't know the finch was anywhere and now it's here and eating all the grubs or whatever they eat um i think it's time that you explained what you're talking about <laughs> um i'm talking about darwin's finches um so darwin's finches uh i'm doing an m and assuming everyone knows the reference um it's often taught in uk uh biology um to i think quite early on which is why i assume it's quite well known but essentially one of darwin the guy who who um is credited with the theory of evolution one of his big pieces of study was um uh finches which are kind of bird in varying islands around the galapagos that are quite uh, close to each other but each island has a distinct environment and so each finch despite having a common ancestor um has you know evolved to fill whichever evolutionary niche happened in the islands i don't think the finches were actually invasive species when they first colonized the islands that was me making a joke but um I always think when we are talking about information and specifically like all of the research we do for this podcast, there are loads of parallels between evolutionary biology and uh, the evolution of like the right and their tactics. Um, one, one thing I was thinking of recently is um, the other Finch, Darwin's Finch specific term, which is uh, radial divergence or radial evolution. Yeah, so like the, the Finch had a common ancestor and then radiated across these islands and adapted. And so you it like from this system shock event like M was uh, speaking about earlier you have this massive shock which is a complete change in information technology and then very quickly various groups whether they're um you know like M said like uh, Russian readers western voters um uh like neighboring Arabic states uh, all have different reactions and responses and they adapt to this massive influx of information in various ways uh many of which are related to disinformation which is actually on topic and now i will i will segue back to m's information Hey everybody, it's M here in the editing room. So basically, uh, I've discovered that we've not really got a huge chunk of audio from this episode. As you can tell, some of the audio is quite bad, and we were having some like various technical problems. But um, there is a key thing that I think needs to make it into this episode, and that's a section about the use of videos and uh, the misrepresentation of videoed or photographed content for the purposes of misinformation or propaganda. Uh, this was absolutely critical for Syrian civil war stuff, and it's also becoming increasingly critical for the reportage of anti-fascist incidents and incidents involving trans people at, in public locations. Um, now, after we recorded the episode, there was um, like a massive explosion in content regarding an incident in Los Angeles uh, surrounding a Korean spa, where uh, somebody from Instagram uploaded a video of themselves confronting staff over the supposed presence of a trans woman in the women's changing rooms. Uh, this then precipitated a confrontation between like transphobes and anti-fascists in Los Angeles. 
the result of this was that there was a protest outside this spa at which right-wing protesters drew weapons and also physically attacked people, uh, including um, a member of the Proud Boys who hit someone with a metal pipe. Uh, now, various people online, including Glenn Greenwald, he who, um, well, I guess he must be named on this particular occasion, decided to report this as anti-fascists being the real fascists, when, as, whereas in reality it was genuinely the Proud Boys. This is a really important incident to highlight because it's only really been pushed back into the narrative of what actually was happening as a result of people picking through the video evidence and analysing it blow by blow. Uh, this was particularly done by Trans Safety Network and various other users online have, have gone through this, including various anti-fascists. This is really like familiar to me from when I was looking at various different things from the Syrian Civil War at its height because exactly this sort of thing would happen quite frequently. Uh, videos of major incidents would be, you know, assigned to the incorrect side by the propagandists of the other one. Like, for example, there were quite a lot of incidents of, you know, people being, like, you know, machine gunned while they had their hands up, and it was said that X militia had done this, whereas actually it was militia Y. And because of the geopolitical leanings of whichever group it was, the reliability of the reporting was completely useless. I'm going to cut back to the main audio section for in a, in a second, but basically I just wanted to highlight that these tactics are very really, very familiar and very similar. You get information brokers, people like Andy, Andy Nyo, who will use this same degree of like clout that they bring with their platform in order to generate and propagate these just like big and pervasive narratives, and you very much get this sense of the lie getting halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. Uh, we'll go into this later, but this is particularly reminiscent to me of what happened with Syrian chemical gas truthers, where they would basically say that, like, there was one particular incident where they claimed that the rebels had blown up a storage unit in their own territory that contained um, that contained chemical gas, whereas what actually happened was that the the Assadist air force had dropped you know, prescribed chemical weapons on a village. It's that kind of thing. Um, usually this will also then be followed by, like, interspersing accusations of X, Y, and Z being a false flag. It's important to note that the purpose here isn't to convince the other side or to convince even people in the middle ground that it is actually the other side doing the bad things. The purpose is actually to create confusion and to create a generally untrustworthy misinformation environment so that your narrative can be pushed through this kind of haze of bad signals and that people who don't want to pay attention will drop out quickly and that people who do want to pay attention will become polarised into one or other camp. Anyway, this seemed to me to be like particularly notable in the case of the like the Wii Spa stuff because you got major online provocateurs such as Greenwald and Yo who would like come up with all of this bullshit and then it was left up to people who essentially did open source research in a same in a similar manner to like Bellingcat or forensic architecture where they went through footage, went through imagery, and were able to put together what actually happened. Um, it's also important to note that the fact that they did that doesn't matter in the context of that misinformation having already penetrated anti-trans communication networks. There will now permanently be a narrative within turf talking circles of like 
trans activists attacking journalists with pipes. Uh, like I saw a tweet earlier today about like a bunch of like a couple of turfs talking to each other saying that they would now always be carrying like pen knives with them. It's ridiculous and it's the purpose of this kind of disinformation is to rile up the in-group. Anyway, the reason why I bring this up here is that I felt that this section about like Darwin's finches and and like major online media personalities and influencers finding their ecological niches in the information environment was sort of an area of similarity here because basically what you see is people people like Neo will take these narratives and then it will kind of they'll they'll be the major propagators but also there's these other people within that commentary system who will propagate like other forms of narration about it that are similar but different or it'll go to like subsections of their communications networks like different particular subsections of the transphobic political culture essentially what i'm getting at is that you've got these kind of like large information conduits and then it feeds down to smaller slightly more specialized ones and through this system there's like a there's basically like a qualitative transfer and like each individual like person is is fulfilling a, a, a effectively like a, an ecological niche within this information ecology um so the there's certain incidents within the history of the Syrian civil war, which are really, really important in the in the history of disinformation, um, and they were largely uh, like war crimes. Um, particularly, they were war crimes involving chemical weapons. Um, the reason why these incidents were really important is because of the nature of chemical weapons and how other governments around the globe will treat them dipl diplomatically. Um, like the last kind of decade or so has seen a big, big breakdown in diplomatic norms generally, but like chemical weapons up until the Syrian civil war were, you know, they were a big thing. Like hell, like we went to, we went to war in Iraq on the basis of a humongous lie that there were loads of chemical weapons in Iraq because of the fact that chemical weapons had been used to horrendous effect in the 1990s. Um, yeah, I mean, leftists talk about this now um, because, like, again, similar to consent manufacture, you'll often see a lot of baby leftists saying, like, oh, America is doing war crimes on its own people because it's gassing them. And that's not how war crimes work because war crimes are defined by states, right? Uh, and I guess this is also related to the Syrian civil war in the fact that, like, chemical weapons were taken a lot more seriously previously. And now it seems to have just eroded completely. And it's almost like a joke to expect. A country not to gas its citizens past a certain point yes so i there's still a certain level of like norms in that you can you, yeah. can, you can use all sorts of incredible uh like riot control agents pretty much willy-nilly i think if you're going to start using like sarin which is a nerve agent or mustard gas which is possibly one of the ones that causes blisters then yeah people will that will cause fucking headlines oh yeah it's not completely eroded yeah, but it's 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 still there, but the rock is a lot smaller than it used to be. So there's certain incidents that were really important, and there's two in particular that resulted in a massive explosion of disinformation. I want to talk about, and these are the chemical weapons attacks on my Arabic pronunciation is always terrible, um, Duma and Khan Sheikhoun, which are two uh, like places in Syria. Uh, both of these attacks were carried out by the like the the, the Baathist Syrian government under Bashar al-Assad. 
um, and they were rebel-held uh, enclaves. So the one I'm going to specifically talk about in terms of disinformation is the Duma chemical weapons attack. So this this was the most one of the more recent ones. There ha I don't think there's been a major um, chemical weapons attack in the Syrian civil war since. Um, there's been a lot of uses of chemical weapons in the Syrian civil war, like several hundred. Like people kind of think it's only like two or three because those, those are the ones that get into the headlines. But I think one count I saw was somewhere around 400 incidents where chemical weapons usage was confirmed or strongly or strongly suspected. Jeez. So what happened to Duma? Duma is in the south of Syria. It's quite close to the border with Lebanon, and therefore it's also quite close to Damascus. Uh, so this was, you know, a strategically important area. It was quite important that there was a strong rebel presence, like, close to Damascus. And as a result, like, the various different things meant that the Syrian Arab Republic felt that it was untenable to permit this area to remain in rebel hands. The thing is, is that the Syrian Arab Republic's army, the Syrian Arab army, is not actually very good. Like, they were running off, like, mass conscripted militias, uh, ancient armor that was, like, regularly getting blown up by improvised weaponry and, like, stuff that had been smuggled over the border from the Americans or the Jordanians or whoever. The Assad regime has not done very well in the war. Like, they regularly lost very large battles, lost hundreds of thousands of men. And as a result, they were finding it very difficult to crack certain areas. Now, the purpose of chemical weapons in warfare is... It's the military equivalent of like waterboarding an entire province um, because you can kind of just drop this stuff in basically willy nilly and it will terrify everybody because of the stuff that it does to the human body. Uh, and that even applies to very simple ones like, you know, chlorine gas. Um, and, you know, if it's more serious things like sarin, then, you know, it, it will be causing, you know, people to suddenly start convulsing and foaming at the mouth and if you know with mustard gas like we've just discussed you know large pus-filled blisters will be forming on people's skin in a matter of minutes it, this is terrifying uh, so it's a very very good psychological weapon and it deploys over a very wide area which means it affects a lot of people and it's very cheap so if you're doing very badly at a war against an enemy that is largely based on the like the psychological and political support of of the population in their areas and who need that population to provide them the backing to protect themselves against you know to to reinforce their position economically and politically then breaking the support of the population is absolutely critical so chemical weapons make a lot of sense uh like they're cheap as chips and you can just slaughter people with them so they use them uh, they use them very effectively and the, the deployment of chemical weapons in Duma was a classic example of this because it was a very strongly held rebel pocket. They spent months and months and months trying to break it. They were regularly popping artillery barrages off at each other to, you know, to some effect, like they were killing each other quite a lot, but it wasn't enough. The victory wasn't happening fast enough. So they gassed them. Now, what happened afterwards is where the disinformation comes in because basically as a result of the chemical weapons attack uh the rebels decided to come to a, an agreement with the government and to surrender that particular area so they they like basically agreed that okay we will hand over our heavy weapons and we will evacuate and you can have this village back this happened quite a lot in the civil war. Happens quite a lot in quite a lot of civil wars, actually. Um, and then subsequently, 
the Syrian government suddenly found that it was getting bombed um, by, I think, the Americans and the Israelis, or possibly just the Israelis. And this kind of kicked off um, a lot of media commentary that, I mean, you know, media commentary was already happening because chemical weapons had been used, but it was not exactly a situation that I would describe as uninflamed. So by this point, chemical weapons have been used dozens and dozens of times in the Civil War and everybody, it was nobody's like first go at the rodeo. So this went immediately to the UN, at which point the like Western powers like, you know, America and France, and I think to a certain extent, the UK got into a huge slap fight with the Russians. So the Russian government started just propagating loads of different disinformation about this stuff, particularly on social media networks. And this was the standard thing that would happen in uh, like high profile incidents relating to the Syrian civil war, because it meant that they could whip up online milieus, which had what we just talked about, a stake in consuming and reproducing particular narratives about this like political and highly, highly ideological historical event. And, and a lot of the specific disinformation about the Duma chemical weapons attack basically revolved around claiming that it was a false flag and that a fact-finding mission uh, conducted by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons was like being manipulated by the United States and that it was all, it was all a UN conspiracy to, to, to like do evil. So we're going to talk about that misinformation campaign now because um, it was very weird. Hey everybody, it's M here again. Um, so yeah, again, there was some information that didn't make it into the initial cut of this episode that I thought would be relevant, and that's to do with the exact structure of this specific disinformation campaign, and how, like, basically open source researchers were able to pick apart that disinformation by examining photographs and videos from the site. Uh, as I've just mentioned earlier in the previous interjection, that's like quite an important investigative technique that can basically unearth bullshit in misinformation. Um, and in this case, it was really, really critical because it, you know, demonstrated the, uh, that a war crime had occurred and, it, and, that it had, and that it had occurred in a specific way. So basically, the, this open source investigation was conducted by like two research slash journalistic organizations. One of them is called Forensic Architecture, which some of you may know of because they reconstructed uh, like a police shooting in the UK at one point. Um, and managed to demonstrate that a police uh, propaganda line that a pistol had been thrown over a fence was in fact complete bullshit by essentially like 3D rendering the entire scene and simulating it. Um, here they did a similar thing. Um, they worked with an organization called Bellingcat, who has a which is a like an investigative journalist outfit that gets a a really like varied uh, reputation amongst leftists. Uh, but in my opinion, are really quite good investigators. Um, and what they did is they, they worked with them in order to analyze available photographic measurements, uh, photographic evidence, and like cross and analyze various different photographs from the scene to tell what had happened. Uh, this is a process called image matching. Um, they got a whole report on it, and basically what they did was they took photos that have been up on social media and they cross-referenced them with each other in order to recreate the scene in real in real time and in a, a simulated space. 
which allowed them to basically determine the trajectory at which uh, like gas cylinders came to arrive at their final destinations. And this was like critical in determining which force in the Civil War had precipitated the attack. Um, now, they also analysed a report by the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, uh, which had this fact-finding mission that I've just mentioned in the, in the main audio section of the episode. Um, now, that report was the subject of a lot of controversy, and as I go into in a bit, basically there was a whole bunch of stuff about there being potential factual errors in the report, the outcome of the investigations by Forensic Architecture and Bellingcat was that basically the bulk of the report was completely accurate and that it was in fact exactly who they said it were, who, who they said it was who had conducted the attack. This, like, the the way that they have investigated this is, like, it, it's fairly surgical, like, it's pretty much idiot-proof, but it doesn't get in the way of the fact that there was a fairly sophisticated disinformation campaign revolving around discrediting the OPCW as an organization. Um, now, those of you who are familiar with the patterns of behavior if, if, when it comes to like sexual abusers or domestic violence may have heard the acronym DARVO, which stands for Deny, Attack and Reverse Victim and Defender. Um, now, this is something that gets used in disinformation quite a lot, particularly when a particular incident is being attempted to be attributed to one group or another um, and it was particularly important in the case of the spa that we mentioned it, that I mentioned in that earlier section and it's critical for a lot of like con for a lot of like conflict journalism that uh, like one of the roles of conflict journalists and fact checkers is to find out if someone is attempting to use this kind of tactic um, it is interesting like the degree to which uh, like abuse perpetrators, have this tactic in in common with like online misinformation with online misinformation merchants and generalized con artists and i remember this happening and i remember people who i'm like who i was friends with and still am friends with just like credulously repeating that this chemical weapons attack had been faked and i was just stunned because i like i'm one of those weirdos who like regularly watches conflict videos of people having horrible things done to them and i was like no this is a very common thing to happen what are you talking about like i've just watched someone get blown up <laughs> um, so yeah that was it was a weird time so it seems to me what you're saying is that one of the big factors in disinformation is also people's different biases and interests. Um, so once you get states involved or state media or s s national interests, um, they immediately pollute the information environment because, for example, uh, Russian exceptionalism uh, in, co in, in conflict with American exceptionalism means that both of them are going to, you know, uh, pollute the pollute the informational uh, ecology with like saying like a bunch of bullshit about their involvement, why they're involved, uh, what their involvement is, uh, and what's going on, right? Because everyone yeah. starts being like, "Oh, I'm doing this because I'm good and perfect and great," um, which then gets in the way of what's actually happening anyway. Because they're they are also by getting involved 
acting upon the landscape and trying to shape it to their own desires as well. So it do, it's not even just about uh, the civil conflict anymore. It's now this grand geopolitical event and there's even more um, uh, in, uh, information bias and there's and there's even more kind of pressure, I suppose, on the events and on the information surrounding the events. Because to me, that really does have a parallel with um, with the with the gender wars, uh, because you know, for example, just in the UK um, recently, uh, listeners may or may not have seen someone. Uh, I think it was a turf, um, and again, I haven't seen the source of the screenshot, so it may even be disinformation. Um, showed the social media uh, reach of specific keywords, I think, uh, related to turf stuff. And it pretty much mapped with uh, it being massively hot in, in, in the UK and only really popping up in uh, English speaking countries uh, in the rest of the world. And um, that, that to me seems relevant because like, not only do we not only do we have like a, a pollution of vested interest because like half of the fucking British media class love doing the gender wars, but also um, you know our literal state has a vested interest in the gender wars in so much that one of the big demands of of British trans people in the gender wars is that we you know access good healthcare and the state is not interested in anyone really accessing good healthcare because they hate the NHS. So that's like technically a separate interest, but it pollutes I guess you know the information and the events specifically um and it is interesting that the like the domestic politics of how the nhs is viewed by the tory party is having like is arguably having a credible third order effect on the shape of global misinformation networks yeah that is quite like funny and interesting yeah well if you look at for example the kira bell case which i know everyone is talking about all the mm -hmm. time you know, everyone talks about the kind of uh, political uh, kind of sort of conservative or evangelical interests, but also um, undermining healthcare saves money if you want to get rid of the NHS, because if you undermine it, you don't have to do as much of it. So it's like there are so many different reasons why um, everything is having this like feedback loop of, of just disinformation and reactionaryism. And it's not just because of trans people. Uh, we are suffering a great deal because of it, but it's not, it's not just about us and it's, it's never just been about us either. Right, exactly. I think that's, I think that's a very good way of, of summing up. So I did, I did actually find like a, a paper by some god awful American, uh, like security industry think tank that um, listed like three deciding factors that, that determine why people share misinformation. So obviously this come, this is a paper that is produced by the man, so we should distrust it inherently. But I do think that this one bit of it is is fairly 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 like reasonable, and they thought that basically the conclusion they came to was there's there's three things that kind of drive the decision to share misinformation online. One of them is the degree to which sharing something would be consistent with past behaviors or beliefs of an individual. Um, the next would be like the degree to which people think their behavior in sharing something would be consistent with that of most other people in their social circles. And then the last one is basically uh, like trust in authority. It's like, does this does this come from a trustworthy source? Oh, it comes from the BBC. Yes, I'll share it. But mm. trust, like a, a trusted authority, is very different to very different people. Like some people will consider like Russia today, which is fucking useless, to be um, like a highly or politics for all .com. God, politics for all. Actually, you know what? We should talk about politics for all. That's a fucking incredible disinformation site. Um, yeah, you know, politics rule, 
terrible. It's also it's also relevant because you're talking about trusted information sources, and in the past, those trusted information sources would have been more institutional. Whereas now, a lot of people will trust their favorite parasocial leftist content personality, like right. politics for all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the other thing that was really important in the Syrian civil war was parasocial relationships with Twitter personalities. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose we, maybe we, let's just uh, let's just talk about that. Um, so yeah, so with with a lot of like COVID truthers and QAnon types, and <laughs> in the wake of the Iraq War and the end of the Cold War, a lot of leftists people love to say, "Do the research for yourself," um, because this gives this like illusion of objectivity, and it like people believe that they're being like rational investigators, which actually obscures where like their actual biases and where all the the mediation of the information is happening. Uh, like speaking as someone who has done a lot of the research for himself the amount of times that i have fucked up due to not knowing x y or z many many times i'm sure if i went through our back catalog of episodes there's going to be something that's going to cause me to like cringe um but the point is is that there's this like split between like, between being a participant and an observer that existed with old media is now completely gone and it's all become this like big parasocial game of telephone where like biases are handed down from no longer from father to son, but from edgelord to edgelord. And this, this dust like, to dust. And because of like because like posting rewards this kind of stuff, this means that there's like psychological investment in in like being an info warrior and sharing all this stuff and doing the research yourself. And the emotive aspect of that psychological investment uh, is often applied to other individuals through parasocial relationships. You see this on um, again going back to ye the internet days of you know the early 2010s. Um, this is kind of, I don't know if it's sort of considered passe on, on, you know, 2021 Twitter, uh, but you used to see people earnestly sharing information, like no one is talking about this. And oh. you would have this emotional feedback loop of like, A, I'm getting the special information. B, I'm informing everyone who follows me on social media and who I have this parasocial relationship with. And it's really important that we get this information out there. It was sort of like, you know, everyone talks about chain emails. Well, people of our millennials make fun of their parents, uh, you know, sharing chain emails or, or we used to, but it was kind of a similar thing, right? It would be like, you have to share this. And instead of it being, if you don't share this chain email, you'll die. It's now you're a bad person. Yeah. It's morally powerful and emotive. And you're, it's like, a, it's yes. a form of emotional blackmail. Think about nobody is sharing this. It's obviously at first of all, every, almost all of the time, everybody is sharing this, but it's particularly emotive like for our generations, I think a lot of leftists are used to seeing like fundraising posts being like, please share this. I'm about to be evicted. I'm like something horrible is about to happen to me. So it, it falls into this like emotional category within how we like interpret information online where we're not thinking about this as like, hmm, what is this factual event that's happening in the world? It's like, ah, there is a moral onus on me to share this. And because I am sharing this, like, I'm doing something right, and if people aren't sharing this, then that means that there's something wrong with the body politic and some kind of moral rot is going on. Um, and it and makes it harder as well, because with fundraisers, sometimes you are genuinely doing good by sharing the information. Uh, we need to do that again. Oh, sorry. We interrupted each other so much. I'm so sorry. Uh, should I just say what I was... What, uh, yeah, just say it again. It makes it difficult as well, because like with things with fundraisers, people decry collectivism, but sometimes sharing someone's fundraiser can materially improve their life. Not always, but uh, 
it, it, I guess, further pollutes things because you can't have your sort of clinical hat on and, and think, oh, yes, what is the information going on? How do I know if this is, you know, correct or whatever? What are the factual events? Because it's not actually about that. But then that does seep into other information. Um, and then you also almost get a sort of burnout with the emotive response to the moral pressure of sharing information, which I saw quite interestingly with um, with with Palestinian coverage. That was one of the first times in over a decade where the sort of phrase no one is talking about this was genuinely in some aspects true because of the specifically in Britain, there are often like uh, employment legal consequences for speaking out about um, about uh, um about Palestine. And so there were there were lots of people who genuinely were saying like, oh, I cannot share this because I will lose my job or I don't care that I'm going to lose my job or I know this person isn't saying something because they're gonna lose their job. And so it's almost come full circle, but, but back in the period where we're talking about, this was all like very embryonic and everyone was very naive. And so it was like a, a big mess. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting about the Palestine example is um, it was revealed quite early on that uh, like, traffic relating to that event was being choked by major social media networks yeah it was genuinely being suppressed yeah now that habit of choking information on that kind of scale about major global events has only actually emerged relatively recently it's been, it's been pioneered by either by large social media companies or by uh, oppressive governments uh, who will normally just choke the entire internet that, like it's very regular for internet shutdowns to happen but those two things, those two like habits of, I guess, you know, global information capitalism have emerged post Syrian civil war in response to that and the explosion of mainstream disinformation during the Trump presidency. Yeah, that was like a very convenient excuse. I mean, um, people used to make jokes about the fact checking websites that, that sprung up. Snopes is a really common example. Snopes oh. would, Snopes would, again, listeners may or may not have seen this, they would fact check um, something that Biden had done and say that it was false because uh, they would take issue with the, the grammar, essentially. Um, you know, it would be things like, did someone in the Biden administration do violence on someone? Well, technically they did, but, and here's why it's false. Um, but yeah, for years previous to this, people would say things like the media is being suppressed, no one is talking about this. And now that is actually happening, but people were very twitchy and paranoid and primed for it before it even started happening. And so you do almost get this burnout period where no one really thinks about that anymore. Uh, and now it is actually happening sometimes. And, and in 2011, social media companies did not have the power that they have now because they were empowered by the Trump presidency and, and by Brexit and, and by Cambridge Analytica scandal and things like that. Anyway, we have some certain individuals to thank for um, the explosion of parasocial information networks. Uh, uh, Mr. Ben Norton, big round of applause. Uh, Max Blumenthal, and um, I can't remember what her actual name is, but there's this like Twitter personality called Partisan Girl. Um, and these pe these three people are, I think, great examples of this. Because the first two, uh, Norton and Blumenthal. Maram Susley. That's it. Yes, that's her name. Um, yeah, I'll refer to her as Partisan Girl for this, just because it's her screen name and it's like the brand. Okay, so yeah, um, Blumenthal and Norton, um, they have a certain level of like blue tick cred because they did actually have uh, moderately good careers as semi-mainstream journalists who weren't constantly doing propaganda for the Russians. And during the Syrian civil war, they became like the major 
uh, like popular misinformation conduits for a lot of the like narratives around concealing what happened during major atrocities. So like they were quite big in like doing this kind of like, ooh, question the narrative, what really happened in, in Duma and all this kind of thing. This goes back to um, how blue ticks did used to be trusted. You know, now everyone's a bit blackpilled on them, but they did used to have that sort of like um, automatic trust. Thinking about the blue ticks, it's not meant to actually indicate that somebody is like a, a good information source. It just indicates that they're a moderately famous and b actually them. But it was treated as such, right? And I think that's yeah. the, the point I rudely interrupted with is that it created this dynamic of kind of um, making people more vulnerable because someone had a blue tick next to their name. Yeah, so Max Blumenthal, I think, is the, the one who I'd like to talk to about, who, who I'd like to talk about, wouldn't like to talk to him. Um, I, this guy is just really unpleasant. He manages a website called The Grey Zone. Um, you may have heard of The Grey Zone. The Grey Zone is like, um, uh, like an alternative independent news website that is largely marketed at leftists but the actual content I would describe as being proto-fascistic. People like Blumenthal used their uh, like anti-US focused ha like commentary habits during the Syrian civil war to build themselves a career so that they could like develop these platforms. You know, they kind of just like, they did what Aaron Bastani did for Corbynism, like he used Corbynism to build Novara. Um, this guy like, and people like him used uh like the the explosion of like international just atrocities to develop their own like online media brands and they're still very popular with a lot of left-wing people as a result of that because we we have this in in the movement we have this big hangover from the iraq war which was a war that was based off of disinformation so yeah people have these parasocial relationships with people like this where they are considered to be like trustworthy because they're fighting the man um and I, I have a feel, I have this personal little theory. There's kind of like a food chain of blue ticks down to down to like basic media producers. So, like I said earlier, that when the Syrian civil war kicked off, like everybody was doing stuff on their damn phones, and this meant that like certain people who were like better at doing this citizen journalism became like highly trusted news sources for Western journalists of, of various different political affiliations. It's like with any system shock or disruption, you have some people who are able to rise to the top, even though everything settles down back to normal eventually. Yes, exactly. Uh, like, you know, people like you know, Jake Hanrahan would probably be a positive example of this. Like, I'm not too much of a fan of Jake Hanrahan's politics. I think he's got a fair, like, reactionary streak in him, although he's clearly... Oh, absolutely. clearly thinks of himself as some sort of leftist. I mean, but he is a good reporter in a technical sense, which Max Blumenthal is not. Um, but he is an example of someone who basically like clawed their way up to the top by being highly like competitive, like be, by having a competitive advantage in that field. Um, and th there's there's other people uh, around uh, kind of like involved in this stuff who got their start in the in in like attempting to report and like un untangle misinformation in the Syrian civil war via the method of open source journalism by verifying pictures to particular locations, particular times to tell that x y and z helicopter attack happened now and, and that yes there is a refugee column moving out of this village that we can tell because of this cell phone video and all this kind of thing 
Um, to return to Max Blumenthal and, and uh, partisan girl and the, the parasocial relationships and how there's this food chain of people, some people are more successful than, than others, and that means that some people have more legitimacy. So I think Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton probably are like, like mainstream journalism considers them like highly illegitimate, uh, but they do have a very solid following, like a very dedicated following. They're considered to be like respectable by a lot of people. Um, and then you kind of get these other like slightly lower tiers of people who are a little bit more like edgelordy, who market to even more specific subcultures. And I think Partisan Girl was a brilliant example of this because she's a bit more like um, like an influencer or like an e-girl, except for conflict journalism. She effectively is like a like a like a Patreon person. Like she, I think she has a Patreon, and she her her marketable product to the subscribers is like reactionary takes like an e-girl with reactionary takes essentially uh, she doesn't when i say an e-girl i mean she's not like on twitch um it's just that she's very much like part of that general kind of like online phenomenon and like that is definitely how she's marketing herself as a twitter personality and i i, I feel particularly in her case because she's like quite a lot of a she's like quite adjacent to what kind of gets called the dirtbag left there's a certain element of when you get this this food chain of people and that like the this decreasing degree of respectability as you go further and further down it it kind of matches the the amount to which they're willing to toe the line of being so obnoxious that you can't make money off things so the people at the top will be like minimal obnoxiousness but they will be the right amount of obnoxiousness to maintain their audience and then the people in the middle will be very very specific forms of troll so that they can market to very very specific subcultures that like having that kind of avatar to cheer for on social media who can fight their corner the upshot of this is that various different like forms and degrees and qualities of misinformation are rewarded and their like producers and mediators are rewarded by by having these like profitable or semi-profitable online presences you know you get you get it's 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 the fucking shoe on head thing right you just get people whose online content is predicated around there being this huge market for misinformation, which is directly wanted by specific audiences. I just think basically that Partisan Girl is quite similar to Posey Parker. Oh, absolutely. Um, in, our, in our previous episode, we were speaking about kind of like the, the girl bears model, that sort of um, shock jockey um, kind of like uh, much more sort of like I'm one of you sort of thing is is absolutely uh, the vibe that I, I have picked up from Partisan Girl, uh, whereas sort of like Max Blumenthal or Ben Norton, uh, tell me if I'm mixing them up, seem to be more the sort of like, I'm a fancy, trustworthy person. Like, you know, it's coming at you from both sides. It's like, you've got your you've got your blue tick better telling you to trust them because they know they're an expert. And then you've got the person nudging you in the shoulder being like, ah, let's be reactionary, it's fun. Yeah, I should stress, Max Blumenthal has moved on to a new grip. He's very big on denying the presence of, like, uh, concentration camps in Xinjiang. Of course. Yeah. In fact, he's been one of the main proponents of pushing that into left-wing discussion spaces in the West. Thanks, Max. That's cool. So, yeah, again, that's, that was another narrative that, like, fed off of a desire for, um, like, anti-US geopolitical talking points amongst, uh, like, online social milieus that he profited off and turned it into a whole disinformation thing that oppressed a highly marginalized minority. 
We will talk more about that in a second because uh, obviously we love a good oppressed marginalized minority here. Um, but I want to kind of just like wrap up my grand theory of this by explaining what I think the, the general structure of this stuff is. So my general theory of how this stuff works is that you get rungs of people in this kind of like ladder and like at the bottom rung you get people producing either like very basic uh, like troll content like people like me essentially who just post they're just random people who just post and you also get people who do direct information provision who will actually be like hi i actually know about what's going on in in aleppo that then like creates this kind of social basis within these social milieus for talking about this stuff um, and then on top of that, you get people who've managed to like rise to the top of that, who are kind of like influence, influencers within those milieus. And as that kind of gets more and more, more and more developed, you get more and more uh, established people who talk about this stuff to the point at which like you get the Guardian editorial board who is just chock-a-block with turfs. Um, now, there's, the, there's like a pattern of disinformation. And like, to me, the purposeful, like obvious denialism has a particular role in like reinforcing this structure the importance of disinformation in like online communities is like it shapes those communities and it shapes those communities as in groups that have defining cultural interests so like defining cultural interests against other other groups or like other other kind of like political concepts um you know the a defining political interest of like the online left is that we very much want to criticize uh western and american foreign policy this is absolutely legitimate and i'm i very much support it like i think it's very like it's very important i spend a lot of time doing that myself but it makes us vulnerable to other people who wish to weaponize that desire to engage in that criticism um like turfs were able to weaponize the desire of liberal feminists to do this kind of like liberal ooh, both sides free speech um type crap because there was like an in based on access to property on access to social legitimacy on a, on on access to political institutions they were able to manipulate that and define the structure of an information community so um denialism of particular things uh, denialism of a war crime um also has this quality control effect on that community if someone isn't willing to deny a war crime then they can be ostracized from a community where that becomes a shibboleth uh, that means that the act of denialism becomes very very important for community building the act of spreading misinformation becomes very very important for community building because if you like questioning something means that you're questioning the community and you can't permit that within uh like communities that are based around the ostracization of social others so you create insiders and outsiders and that's not that's not a bad thing like the creation of insiders and outsiders is actually very beneficial to the engineering of these systems so it's it's like it's like uh denialism and, and, mis and the, the purposeful spread of misinformation becomes like a, a social ritual which like anoints people within it within these within these organizational spaces within these within these social spaces and you get these I, like you get these like cults of information where like information has to take on a particular qualitative form otherwise you're no longer permitted within the cult or you're within some kind of like orbit of it where you're not totally kosher but you're not persona non grata either and like they'll believe you about some stuff but they won't talk to you about others and maybe you're not allowed into the group dm very much like a uh, debbie hayton uh the trans woman who cozies up to all the turfs 
uh yeah i would imagine that she's not very popular they will be nice to her to her face sometimes and very horrible about her behind her back um i meant with us oh yes but uh it's, it's, a it's similar this stuff works both ways because um if it doesn't if the other community is like accepting of people from from the other one then it can actually disrupt this dynamic quite a lot uh, yes there's a limit to that obviously she, yeah, she's completely uh, alienated herself from the trans community because she's fucking us all over. Um, and on an informational, rather than necessarily human empathy side, is completely cut off from the trans community. And then is, you know, held at arm's length at various, uh, in various ways, according to uh, her purpose to, to, to the gender reactionaries. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess um, because we, we love our, our ecosystem metaphors, like I am essentially describing... Um, like a, a forest where there's 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 grass and then there's small plants like nettles or daffodils and then there's shrubberies and then there's a few trees and these things have particular like qualitative roles within this system um and if you try and you know grow grow a tree like way outside of the area where all the shrubs are then it's probable that some deer will come along and eat it instead yeah, I mean, in ecological theory, especially forest theory, which is um, gaining more uh, precedence now because of all of the climate stuff that we've done, this is referred to as like a cycle of like, you know, life creates life, but also if the system is disrupted, decay creates decay. So it is a bit of a feedback loop as well. You have complexity grows as like the, the energy or, or life grows. And so you get more niches and more people fulfilling more specific niches, the more energy the system has. Yeah, and I should, I want to stress that the, the input into an information system, the energy input into an information system is political events. So the Syria disinformation system is a lot less important to global disinformation now than it was. People have moved on to other stuff, which is why Max Blumenthal is doing stuff about China. Um, but, but the tactics have evolved because, like, permanently evolved because of the way the data was used during that period, even yeah, if Darwin, politically the concern has moved on. The Darwin's Finch specialization has allowed these people to move to another island and eat all the nuts there. Yeah. Even though the previous island is now a bit barren because um, metaphorically speaking, they've eaten all the nuts. In real life, what's happened is that Bashar al-Assad has, for the most part, won the Syrian civil war and is no longer doing quite so many chemical gas attacks um, yeah so in the informational ecology like the adaptations are based on the information and the and the events themselves of the actual landscape yeah exactly um so i guess we better bring it back down to to things that the user the, the users the listeners are more familiar with and talk about you know the transphobic side of things and complete this comparative analysis one of the main parallels i my understanding uh, of, of Syria, thanks to M, that I see with the, the turf stuff is the way in which people who want to combat misinformation unwittingly, you know, adds the energy to this informational environment for the worse, um, which uh, is part of this, again, to my understanding, part of the reason that disinformation proliferates so well is the sheer mass of information means that you have this large amount of noise. And so what that means is that even people countering misinformation become part of that noise, which further obfuscates uh, information. And I think that this is really clearly well seen with, unfortunately, um, people trying to act in solidarity with trans people. Um, many trans listeners will roll their eyes when I say the term uh, quote tweet dunk. Um, but like 
this this refers to for those who haven't uh when people try and combat turf misinformation or even just like get into arguments uh although i think people have, have really stopped doing that but still do continue to try and genuinely um out of like you know real real good intentions trying try and combat like trolls and and misinformation will engage in arguing trying to point out things that that are completely wrong but it causes it, it doesn't so much help in the sense that a it's just boosting um you know the signal uh of of gender reactionaries and also it creates more confusion because people get drawn into like very specific bickering about very specific pieces of information that people may not have the context for which means that you have turned your you know shining truth into yet another piece of noise yeah the thing is is like i haven't got anything to add to that other than that was also highly formative in the bad information environment during the live reporting of syria and stuff <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing constantly i did it i did it a lot uh, I didn't realize what the model of things was then, so I was just like constantly like quote like quote tweet dunking people who were like reporting tank movements incorrectly and all of this kind of stuff. Well, it's kind of like you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, stuff, right? Like, um, I guess one one dream uh, that I assume that we both share of, of 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 this podcast is we're all pernickety and we love left bashing and we're very very mean. But my dream is that people will listen to something like this and for them it might be the first iteration of this cycle and they might realize like oh yeah that's not actually super helpful and thus avoid perpetuating it whereas for you this isn't your first you know uh, merry-go-round and so you're more aware of it i think a lot of people genuinely aren't um and that's why i specifically said you know trans listeners might roll their eyes because for a lot of trans people we have seen this cycle and then a lot of our cis allies you know whatever their good intentions because they're allies and they only really got involved five minutes ago no offense full offense uh they're, they're just completely naive and ignorant and so they think that they're helping by doing these like uh quote tweet things um and despite their absolute best intentions which i am not you know saying that they're not it's not super helpful you know like at, at worst it's quite traumatizing to the trans people who have to interact with them socially but even at best i think it does feed into this uh disinformation environment um and you know the other thing which like anti-fascist listeners will be a lot more familiar with is once someone has reached a certain point of radicalization or reactionaryism debating them isn't helpful anyway and so it, it kind of doesn't really serve any purpose whatsoever other than knee-jerk emotional reaction which again is completely genuine and understandable but unhelpful um i guess like the other the other parallel that i really see apart from the you know the blue ticks or you know people who are backed by institutions to various degrees or have some kind of clout or whatever getting involved for their own interests and further muddying the waters and also the sort of like uh, what did you say third order um uh, effects from like bigger actors like corporations and states so my real life example of this was the, the first time i went to london anarchist book fair and someone was going to be giving a talk there 1992 <laughs> i was minus two years old <laughs> no I, I i was making a joke about how we're grumpy and also obfuscating information about you oh um sorry oh, let's just start again sorry <laughs> So yeah, I went to London Anarchist Book Fair a few years back. Uh, this is one, like one of my first like dipping into the toes of actually organizing organizational anarchism, going to anything that had anarchism on the title. Um, and one of the things I was most interested in was one of the speakers there was this um, woman who had written a book. She was a Syrian uh, refugee called Leila Al Shami, 
and she'd written the book um, with a colleague of hers who later became a bit weird in his own right about the Syrian civil war and about how it started as a proper like workers uprising and and was an attempt to actually bring about democracy and was then completely like destroyed by the, the Assadists and the, and the jihadists and she was she never got to deliver her talk because she was forced out of the room um, and she was forced out of the room because uh, there was sufficient disinformation within the like British left-wing community that a small but vocal chunk of the crowd did a stage invasion because they thought that her co-author was like directly linked to a jihadist cell um, and he like he had really bad opinions about like certain aspects of whether or not the jihadists were like useful from a moral point of view but he wasn't a jihadist um, and they forced her out and for all, for all of the quote tweet dunking in the world that i had done prior to this i was not very useful in that situation for the purposes of like furthering the voices of syrian refugees and she never got to make that talk and nor was anybody else in that room very useful people were kind of like there was a lot of ferrari and like a lot of huffing and puffing and puffing but people didn't stand up for bystander syndrome um, I stand a syndrome 100% of the time. Yeah, it's really interesting that is your specific example as well, because a very similar furor broke out when people who legitimately are confirmed, you know, anti-trans people were at a probably, you know, not the same year anarchist book fair, uh, but turned up and started agitating. They started giving out flyers. I don't think they were specifically booked for any speeches, but there was a similar furor. And this time, there wasn't so much bystander syndrome people started following them and and yelling at them but this time the similarly again because of disinformation because some people who are extremely big in the anti-trans movement as we've covered in previous episodes are very well embedded within the left were clearly primed to view them as you know feminist defenders uh who were being uh stopped by the man and so all of these people saying oi hang on these people hate trans people were the man and so in that instance uh the the furor didn't uh, accomplish anything either because it became a, a whole conversation about you know cancelling and free speech and then that ended up uh uh being the last nail in the coffin for the london anarchist book fair it, it it literally broke the um the sort of organizing uh contingent it's not really an, an a specific organization behind it but it was like a it was like a system shock that like the, the London left at the time could not survive. Um, and I've seen this in other left groups for other reasons several times when there's like a, a massive um, existential threat to a movement or an organization, whether it's because it turns out that like, you know, big, 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 big Billy who, who runs all these front groups is a sex pest or whether it's like, oh, are trans people human beings? I'm not quite sure. If the if the movement or organization cannot come to you know what we believe is the correct conclusion in a fairly swift manner, it it just becomes like this massive informational noisy and everyone just burns out and and the and the movement such as it was previously is destroyed. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I'd like to move on to the transphobic misinformation campaigns. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's. The bridge I had in mind for this was talking about Wakefield because noted trans ally H Bomber guy did a wonderful video that we both watched about um, Dr. Andrew Wakefield's MMR anti-vax hoax and we thought that it was quite interesting and also it links over to how a lot of the fake news and misinformation 
on the transphobic side of things works, which is that a lot of it is about cherry picking reports or 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 uh, like arguing about institutions or about like bullshitting about pseudo medical stuff. Yeah, recently, um, uh, a reporter from Pink News um, was the first person to report on the fact that the GICs have just removed um, all. All, all, all surgery access for transmasculine people in in Great Britain and I was looking at the comments as you do of all these trolls these turf trolls showing up and it was the same thing they've gone back to the pseudo medical thing of like you know look at this fake study or look at these fake facts about these surgical procedures and it, they are still they are still relying on on the same stuff which is again like classic Wakefield even if it's not literally linked to anti-vax sentiment it has had this adaptive um you know evolution and and it's clearly one that's extremely productive and so they, they stick with it yeah I think you, you wrote some some interesting notes about about Wakefield which I'll just try and dig out because I thought they were they're like a brilliant a brilliant way to like link over to this because Wakefield is also a classic example of becoming of becoming a grifter off of the off of the misinformation. Um, like he's just he's just very good for that. Uh, he reminds me so much of of people like Partisan Girl and uh, Max Blumenthal because he started off, like particularly in the case of, of like Max Blumenthal, started off as a fairly normal journalist. Um, ben Norton started off as a very normal normal journalist. Um, Dr. Wakefield, you know, in the, in the, the documentary that, that H. Paul Guy produced, he found a clip of Wakefield saying, uh, what I did was uh, find an absolutely perfect method of flushing a perfectly good career down the toilet, or words to that effect. And now the way that Wakefield makes money is he sells DVDs about being an anti-vaxxer to the anti-vax community. And he's just this complete like wreck of a man in terms of his like public profile. But is living in an absolutely massive house. Well, he's he he's kind of gotten like it's not the same as like getting glinner pilled or like rolling pilled, but it is that thing of um you have the skin in the game and you become incentivized to turn your crankery into your grift because now you've alienated everyone who isn't a crank. You need to find a new audience to make money off, and you can make money off them if you learn to speak the crank lingo perfectly. Yes, very much so. Um, like fake, all the also like all these fake reports. Uh, they 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 they're the basis for the crankling. The crankling go is what becomes the shibboleth, right? And these fake reports are essential for that. Like if you don't believe the fake report, then you don't believe in reality. You haven't taken the right pill that Morpheus tried to give you. Yeah, and as 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 Harris like states, like the report itself is garbage, and like it's very clearly garbage and the, the the kind of like the medical community's response to it was fairly swift and in, in his video he talks about how the journal which originally printed it and then immediately retracted it specifically said like we are worried about this creating a huge anti-vax movement they said they had an extremely prescient statement which turned out to be entirely true so they did have the correct response but even then because it became like as you say the shibboleth it doesn't matter because it's not about that anymore it's about it's about the cult response so my feeling, which is a commonality, uh, like my feeling is that there's a commonality across all of these different uh, like misinformation milieus, like these social groups, which is that um, the false report, like the fake science, uh, like the, 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 the dodgy documentation is the absolute bread and butter of misinformation. There needs to be some kind of semblance of institutional legitimacy, some kind of, and no matter how pantomimish it is, there has to be something they can point at. Um, like chemical weapons truthers, need their um like 
misquoted UN first draft report that got leaked without permission and then um, was edited down so that it only showed the bad bits and didn't show the conclusions. That's what happened with the, with the disinformation campaign um, surrounding the Duma chemical weapons attack. Is that like uh, there was like a leak from within the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons of like an email conversation that that like WikiLeaks only published half of the emails to make it look as if there was suspicion within the OPCW that the whole thing was a false flag or something. And then like Bellingcat, there's like who are like a, a fairly large open source investigative journalist outfit did like months and months of research like debunking that entire narrative so like the false report or the cherry pick report absolutely essential for misinformation and it's also absolutely essential um like no matter what kind of misinformation it is so like gender crits or turfs or transos or whatever really love their fake reports or like their doctored reports or their cherry picked remarks from from politicians about women's prisons about about conversion therapy about all this kind of stuff um, yeah, you, you need some jumping off point of legitimacy to onboard and indoctrinate people. And it has the dual purpose of you just said that Ballincat spent months debunking this. And we were talking about, you know, um, disinfo combating uh, or quote, quote tweets on Twitter. People put a great term, a great deal of energy into combating it. But that's not its purpose and so you've got you've got like the other side like chasing their tails meanwhile as soon as you have a little bit of legitimacy um to onboard people with you can sort of once they're in you can sort of dispense with it it doesn't matter if it gets debunked to the people who you're actually trying to reach um with prison stuff specifically bringing it back to transphobia that worked out so well specifically because the legitimacy comes from like the carceral justice system. Like if you if you want to characterize um, mostly trans women as, uh, de if you want to dehumanize them, half of that dehumanization is already done for you if those trans women are incarcerated because the British system specifically, I mean, lots of other countries uh, have, you know, awful, I mean, prisons are bad generally, but the British system, the, the, the media and the state have whipped up uh, carceral hatred for imprisoned people for years. Like the Blairites were so bad for it. They used to do media things about how prisoners got flat screen televisions and, you know, like mobile phones and stuff like that. And so the British public are completely primed to turn on anyone who is associated with prisons in any way as the worst of the worst. Uh, and so that legitimacy didn't even necessarily need to have a report, although the TERFs do have a fake report comparing, I think, uh, the criminality of trans women to cis men, which again is completely debunked, but it doesn't matter because people were primed because uh, people are incarcerated. And then you have that jumping off point to once you've characterized incarcerated trans women as sex criminals, you can uh, characterize all trans women in any bathroom as a sex criminal as well. She doesn't even have to be associated with uh, the carceral system. Yeah, it's like I can't remember. I, so I wrote this down in the notes somewhere, and I can't remember where it is. But basically, basically, criminal with sex characteristics. That's the one. That's what I was thinking of. Like that's what they want to. That's what they want to create the the image of. Um, and like, the, like the manipulation of legitimacy is then like used as the basis for for this. Like the 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 disinformation both alienates the people who it's directed at by being by like libeling them, whilst also like alienating those who spread it from society, which then hardens up that entire group, which means they can still produce viral content, but they're a lot less susceptible to like being persuaded otherwise. And then then you can like get these like things where you've got this, you've got this formation that can just produce all of these like horrendous thin ends thin ends of the wedge. 
that just dig into the, the public discourse around X, Y, or Z topic. And like, Bringing I, it, sorry. We know that we know, because there was, there was a report quite recently that indicated that transphobic narratives, are, you know, they're, 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 they're fairly mainstream, but they're not actually something that the general public particularly cares about or is even particularly supportive of. So like the strategy isn't to win a plurality or a majority, it's to leverage this toxic information environment to constantly put the LGBT community and the political movement into just like constant, constant states of disarray. And it just overstresses like public science communicators or public health advocates or like LGBT campaigners and just forces them to constantly be on the responsive, constantly on the, on the defensive. And it means that there's this just environmental effect of repeated political information violence directed at trans people so it just it just kind of precipitates and then builds and builds and builds it's, it's bringing like it back to bringing it back to the environment again it reminds me in terms of invasive species of uh, rhododendrons which are like a huge problem in scotland which em will know way more about and one of the reasons they're a problem is because they poison everything else, which creates more of a landscape for them. And it's kind of a similar thing. It's like this information is, is poison to all of these advocates. It stresses them out. They expend loads of energy trying to fight it off. And it sort of uh, does nothing but, but good for the actual, you know, the rhododendron or the reactionaries. Um, it has like a yeah. dual purpose. Yeah, like, okay, so there's a brilliant... Um... I think Syrian Lebanese. And you have to burn it with fire, just like with rhododendrons. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I love how you assumed that I would know about rhododendrons because I'm Scottish. No, I know nothing about them. They're a huge problem in Scotland. I'm sure they are. I just don't know anything about this. Second of all, uh, this reminds me very much of something I think um, a guy called Joey Ayoub, who is a Syrian Lebanese journalist, uh, remarked about this stuff. He I, I think he was talking about how he had PS, how he had or possibly still has PTSD and the constant combating of misinformation on a subject which involved like his friends getting killed and like places that he knew getting bombed flat meant that combating information combating misinformation became like actively physically harmful to him like it was damaging his mental health. Um, yeah, and you see that with trans people. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm not I'm not comparing war crimes sure to. That- transphobia but it is traumatizing absolutely i'm 100 certain that what it was joey Ayub, um, who is a very prominent uh i think anarchist uh left-wing political journalist he's a very good reporter i like him a lot um so we, we, we were talking about the thin end of the wedge and i want to return to this so absolutely the way that wakefield did it was um he didn't say vaccines are fake he uh like said that of the combined mmr jab had the potential to be risky so therefore people should use all of the jabs separately the reason why he was doing this is because he wanted to sell new vaccines because he had a proprietary interest and it's but it there's also this is also kind of like mimicked on uh, like gender related political disinformation where there's all of this like legitimate concerns type stuff and it's like concerns about fucking nonsense like it's like Oh, they're giving operations to 12-year-olds. No, they're not. No. And it's just, it, so this thin end of the wedge appears, and if it's, even if it's, like, vaguely plausible, then it will later make room for something that's even more implausible. So you, you will start off with, hmm, 
are the procedures really being followed at the gender identity clinics? Is something going on with this strange gender stuff? This all seems very new and sudden. And then like a few months later that you've got like paedophile doctors are doing operations on your kids. Uh, we've been thinking a lot about Wakefield and how he's like an interesting example of like the political corruption of like medical standards in the UK. And we this is not the last we have heard about Andy, uh, rest assured. Interesting character, lot to teach us. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think with the thin end of the wedge, uh, like you get the prisons and bathrooms discourse because what they really want to do is they move, they want to move on to every aspect of like public municipal life. Like they want to essentially do, they want to do segregation and like enforced closeting. So you need to do stuff like force people out of schools, force people out of workplaces. Um, and if you start with things that are emotively scary because of the predilections of the British public, like the pedogeddon scare means that you can make people afraid of like a rapist in the bathroom. And the fact that we all hate criminals because criminals are benefit scrounging, thieving scum who want to murder you means that you can just kick the shit out of prisoners on a political basis willy-nilly. Because like everybody, like there's loads of like political talking points about like, oh, we should bring back capital punishment in the UK because we're just a very reactionary society. They still haven't done it. And I don't think they will, or at least not anytime soon. But just that general habit of narrative exists within just like right-wing discourse in general of just like beating on the prisoners continuously because it's so easy and it's seen as a vote winner. And it, it accomplishes, again, as I was saying earlier, like trans people are not the only victims. We may be suffering, but like we're not the point. Um, this has the third order uh, effect of being extremely good for xenophobia. A recent news is that Priti Patel, um, immigrant murderer, is trying to open a concentration camp in Rwanda to, pro to process Im immigrants. And it's like that also builds off carceral reactionaryism. I mean, it's not going to be as bad as what actually happened at Hotel Rwanda. Um... But it's just, I just think it's politically incredible that this is happening. Because I think, like, if someone had tried pulling that that policy off in 2007, then... Also pre-Syrian civil war and all of the things we're talking about. <laughs> Pre-Syrian pre civil war and therefore prior to the migrant and refugee crisis. And the disinformation crisis. And the, and the legitimacy crisis. Then she would have got slaughtered, and people would have been talking about Hotel Rwanda and the fact yeah. that putting immigrants in and the fact they put immigrants in hotels over here. But I think that's the point of this whole episode: is that right. those events had such wide-reaching consequences for the state to be able to do whatever the fuck they wanted unchecked. Because, like, another example is the fact that George Osborne recently got appointed to be the director of the British Museum, which, like, I'm not saying, oh, th that could never have happened, but it's similarly politically incredible because he used to be known for destroying museums. And similarly, Mary Beard, who defended him, has uh, uh, should have come under more fire for um, basically... Uh, hand waving away like Haitian, uh, um, not war crimes, but you know, ha ha a lot of murders and, and violence against Haitian people by charities, but they just get away with it now because like the norms have moved on, I think, in the political landscape of Britain at least. Because the norms are there, uh, all of this like nonsense that we get from allies when they're doing like performative um, quote dunking essentially just becomes like it, it becomes like even more useless it becomes like a complete distraction like previously it was entirely useless but arguably could have a propaganda value but now things have become sufficiently extreme that it's just fucking nonsense um so you get this you get this thing where like the like the, the commentary community is just continuously inflamed 
by these like you know, basically flame wars but it doesn't actually matter from the point of view of forming up any kind of coherent political counteraction because at the end of the day it doesn't produce anything coherent it doesn't produce any kind of organization it doesn't change the norms within our community to be more adaptive and competitive in a disinformation rich environment it just kind of makes people into better posters yeah in, in our notes we 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 made the point that it's 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 like a manipulation of the community community's immune response in solidarity uh like misinformation itself is effectively an autoimmune disease and i think that like triggering of arousal is also relevant to your point about um the trauma of combating misinformation and it really is autoimmune in the sense that it, we're just damaging ourselves we're not there's no external change yeah it's 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 weird because like i don't know i don't know what the adaptation would be to to fight this i have like some inclinations about what it would what form it would take like the things that did end up fighting uh disinformation in the syrian civil war basically just like journalism got better but by the time it got better the, like the war isn't over like it's still going but you know it's still kind of like going on in dribs and drabs but it's very clear like who's won and what the outcome was and like the the popular uprising was just repeatedly like co-opted by by like jihadists or militant Islamist groups, or it was crushed by the Assad regime, or it was just forced into exile into this massive diaspora refugee community that now largely exists in like uh, refugee camps in or around Syria. We can't really like we're kind of faced with this situation where we're going to end up with a desert that we call peace if we don't come up with an actual adaptation to this. But I think the good news is that the report that we mentioned earlier about uh, how a lot of like online commentary on trans issues is largely focused in the UK, which I, I do think is probably accurate, does indicate that there is a positive potential future, which is that if it could be defeated here, then that would sort of pull the plug on quite a lot of it, because we do seem to be in the middle of the powerhouse. Well, it's like there is a parallel here and in, in, in you said like, you know, what happened with Syria is that the journalists got better, but by then it was kind of too late. The exact same thing has happened here. Like there is one journalist at Pink News, which like never used to care about trans people pumping out articles. Trans pride was not covered by the mainstream media. It was covered by Huck and The Independent slightly. So journalism is apparently slowly getting better, but to my mind, too late. The difference is that although we're making these parallels, Syrian war crimes are not happening happening to the British trans population yet. So there is like there the, the the annihilation is not at the same point. Even if like the media cycle and the disinformation has a lot of parallels, there is more hope because you know we haven't been exterminated yet. And so uh, I think there are things that are still to be done, even though the kind of like the institutional um, response is exactly the same and it exactly is useless. Yeah, it's like in, in, in five years' time, we'll have three or four more Jolly on Morns type. What, how's his second name pronounced? I have no idea. Morn? Jolly and Foxman? Foxkiller. You, know, you all know who you're talking about. You know who it is. That guy, the guy with the hair. The, yeah, like, if, if current trends continue, we'll end up with a few more people like him who are, like, slightly mainstream liberals who will, like, fight the corner. And eventually it'll develop to a point where, like, that's, like, newer journalists will begin slowly changing journalistic habits but like nobody who's involved in trans liberation politics right now is going to say that that's remotely good enough like that's fucking ridiculous 
Yeah, and if we know that the trend is going to go that way and we know it's going to be too late, then we know that the actual solution to what's going on cannot be found in those spheres. Yeah, the actual, like, the actual solution is to come up with a system shock on our own. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to say things uh, on, on the internet that are potentially inflammatory in some way, because I yeah, never want no to do that. No actionable threats being issued on this podcast. Never. Um, but... Yeah, if, 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 like the, if there's one thing to say, it's like the left seems to be stuck in a kind of similar cycle, which seems to be based on the way in which we utilize, consume and produce information. And especially like our obsession with, I guess, uh, veracity and institutions. And so the further we get away from that, the better to my mind. And, and the more offline we get, the better. Um, Especially because, as noted, a lot of the now genuine media choking and, and media suppression is coming from social media. Do not ever organize anything on social media, ever. I guess, I guess what I would say, my, my uh, very, very tentative prescription for this would be, was that we need to, like, we need to have, we need to cultivate better in, in information environment standards within the movement itself so that we can have like a competitive advantage and i think that that needs to like break out of the current model where we're constantly engaging in like essentially the thunderdome yeah the thunderdome like where where like the, the the quote tweet dunk is is gradually retired as a weapon of war it is a bit like bringing a bayonet into stalingrad you know it's just not really unless you are literally willing to charge the house and get machine guns then i'm not holding out much hope for you I mean, people do get machine gunned. And again, this links back to the trauma thing. I'm seeing so many people that are now becoming allies, doing the quote tweet dunk, bringing their bayonet, getting machine gunned and suffering a huge amount. And it's like very shit to see. It's like, I'm here in my in my shooter's butt with my gun and I'm just watching someone wander up and just get riddled with bullets and just being like, uh, I'm, I, you know, uh, I, I, there's nothing I could have done. Yeah, here, um, here we are in the foxhole with Foxkiller. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the pride discourse right if we're talking about like better strategies um there was like pride discourse started by fake leftists like shoe on head and vouch and all those idiots who i don't really understand why they we still give them oxygen um that was like again classic turf right-wing talking points that have been incubated in tumblr in you know the early 2010s and have now found new life because all of the zoomers who weren't around it's now their first rodeo you know about like um the you know the fascistic like the timmy the timmy concerned trolling all of that kind of stuff and the thing that i noticed is that people engaged with it despite the fact that every year all the lgbt people on on the internet make jokes about the pride discourse so we know it's coming and yet yeah. people still engage with it we know that there will be someone wringing their hands about the completely fictional concept of a squadron of leather daddies like masturbating in front of a nursery which does not happen yeah and yet every time why are we still why are we still falling for it um I guess like yeah how would we, how would we conclude this um we know what like there is a definable misinformation model the misinformation model is common across various different political environments um it largely benefits those in power and it doesn't benefit us to combat it we need to come up with some kind of like across the board people between us need to come up with kind of, some kind of like community response which has a coherent behavioral set of things that people do as part of it well if disruption however minorly 
causes a system shock and disrupts the you know you could call it like hegemony or whatever in some form as seen in the syrian <clears throat> civil war and and as seen in other examples and if the uh the 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 powers that be have perfectly adapted to the information age and if moving away from social media and, and intellectualism is a good thing then i would you know surely say that any kind of system shock would be involved uh would be related to a community response that is is counter to those elements and hope that whatever disruption you cause you can ride the wave enough to actually do some proper disruption before it gets subsumed once again by by this hegemony i think this is relevant in terms of trans pride london which happened recently um which was an offline gathering of lots of trans people many of whom traveled hundreds of miles to attend and <clears throat> was a was a significant proportion of the trans community uh it's a new pride it, it's only in its third year and it was during covid so um you know the the attendance which was i think around eight thousand, a little bit more maybe a little bit less was it was a significant amount and absolutely like milk a toast bloody chance like as leftists it was a it was a wild it was a wild event to attend but like you'd almost hope that a community response could take a, a kind of similar form but like without the shitlib stuff that is something which is really old hat it's like the it's like the bayonet like a lot of people who because it's the one benefit that like online trans lefties have is that we are all angry and blackpilled from seeing you know this solidarity response the quote the quote tweets, the reactionary stuff, like all of these like battle scars we've accrued at the very least make us less naive. And then in this offline environment, it was just full of people who were naive. There were lots of young attendees. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's super vulnerable. The SWP had a massive presence and most people I spoke to had no idea of Comrade Delta, which if you are a listener and you don't know what Comrade Delta is, Google it as an aside. Peter Tatchell also attended. And it was like all of these bottom feeders coming up for a new, you know, a to, to, they were like a new source of political energy, new food for them, and there was nothing to combat it. So if 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 we want to change things, we sort of have to get in now and and further things like this, like offline um, organizing and, and and gathering, without allowing the exact same institutions and powers that be to infiltrate immediately and destroy it. Um, just to be specific about Peter Tatchell, for those of you who listen, yes, he is meant to be like a. a a lion of the struggle and all of this but there are various reasons why he is a bit crap yeah he um he's he's not just a careerist but has genuinely been involved with a lot of reactionary elements um and also will sue anyone who criticizes him but there are lots of reports uh, some of which we can link in the thread when we post this episode um from people who he has massively fucked over uh, and so people like him and the SWP, we know what they're about. They find uh, naive people and suck out their political energy for their own gain. Let's not have it happen with uh, the trans struggle. One thing I would like to know about the SWP is it's one of the few left-wing political organizations in Britain that is actually beginning to tack onto the trans rights stuff because their specific, like, their specific modus operandi is to tack onto uh, mainstream street protest movements. So it's exactly perfect for them. No, especially because they prey on students too. Yeah, and no other large political organization in the UK is doing it. The SWP has been like persona non grata in the left for years, and it would be a shame if this was the way that they weaseled their way back in, especially with a bunch of like vulnerable 19 year old trans people. Anyway, um, that's our big gripe finished. I guess we wrap up this episode now. Um, yeah, what's the next episode about, E? We're sending all the gender clinicians to The Hague. Yes, we are. 
Um, so we've, we're, we're doing another show trial. We love show trials. Uh, apart from the inflammatory, inflammatory phrasing, uh, on, a, on a more serious note, if you are a trans listener and you have ever had any bad experiences with any of the gender clinicians, which if you're a trans listener and have had an experience with a gender clinician, you will have had, uh, please get in touch. Um, we are really interested to hear from people. Uh, we're not interested in causing any shit for anyone though. So if you do speak to us as ever, your anonymity will be absolutely assured and we can work with you to like let you know whatever information that you share uh, will be shared in the way that you are comfortable with. Um, yeah, so I guess, uh, sorry about the delay in, in getting this episode out. I don't know when the next one's gonna come out. We're gonna try and turn it out a little bit faster. I say that having a vague recollection that I might have said that at the end of the previous episode. So who knows? We'll Consumer do- professionals here are Fleet Street officers. Oh God, can you imagine? I've got a big glass window. I'm looking out at my walnut oak desk, uh, thumbing my eggshell embossed business cards, uh, looking at the view, enjoying my industry cred that I absolutely have. Wow, that's a very specific. Um, you thought about this a lot, haven't you? Oh no, I'm just conjuring like every single like Hollywood movie about fancy guys in offices. Okay, okay. <laughs> Signing off every episode of Blood and Turf podcast by like damping down our like beautifully flourished signatures with ink blotter paper. Getting my dust out to, to, to blot the ink before we before we wax seal it and give anyway, it to uh, yeah. so, a message boy. God mess. <laughs> fucking pneumatic tubes that send letters out of the building. That's how tweets work. That's how tweets work. You just put the, you just put the tweet in the tube and it goes woo. Um, yeah. So next episode, we're going to be looking at the various sundry crimes of gender clinicians and how uh, the manner in which they continue rolling on is similar to famous criminals throughout the ages. That's it for now. Bye bye, everybody. Bye.